murder, insanity, suicide. The history of Hill House was ideal. It had everything I wanted. It was built 90 odd, very odd years ago by a man named Hugh Crane as a home for his wife and daughter in the most remote part of New England he could find. Welcome to Now Playing's The Haunting Movie Retrospective Series. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace? But some houses, like Hill House, are born bad. Hosted by Jacob. You are a looker, aren't you? A real tomato. Arnie. You're worse than a guy. You're like a frat guy. And Stuart. You're a monster. You're the monster of Hill House. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're scared. I can tell. How? Because I'm scared. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. I'm listening. Today we're discussing The Haunting. Starring Liam Neeson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Owen Wilson, Lily Taylor. Directed by Jan DeBont. This is the now-playing co-host who has low self-esteem, high narcissism, and a chronic feeling of emptiness, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who wears such savage kicks, Jacob. <laughs> and we're back at The Haunting, the bad one. I think that's the easy way for, to remember this one. This is the one everyone hated. Even though it started out, I just want to point out, this could have been the first collaboration between the two Stevens. Stephen King and Steven Spielberg had wanted to work together for well over a decade, and this movie started as that pairing. They were first going to do The Talisman, one of the reasons why it's probably the only book in King's heyday that hasn't been adapted. The reason why Steven Spielberg is a big fan, he optioned the rights, he always thought one day he would direct it, and they mutually love Shirley Jackson's novel, very evident by The Shining and by Poltergeist, it seemed natural that they would want to work together on this remake. Where did they go? Neither of them are here. Actually, the movie that Stephen King wrote was made for television. <laughs> of course it was. In a miniseries that I don't think it ever had a book equivalent. It's called Rose Red. Oh, yeah. Not to be confused with a book that he wrote called Rose Matter. Rose Red 2002 is a haunted house movie that originally was going to be The Haunted. There is a book, but it's not called Rose Red. It's called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. I knew I was going to have to read that pretty soon. Yeah, I think we were probably another year away from that. We're probably 10 years behind that film in Stephen King's filmography. But from what I hear, one of his better TV miniseries. God, I hope it's true. I'm shocked that Stephen King wasn't involved with this because, man, the, these moving statues in this film give me some strong King version of Shining vibe those hedge monsters. Well, it's funny you bring up The Shining because I think that's where the trouble might have been. I mean, keep in mind, Spielberg thinks Kubrick's Shining is one of the greatest and, you know, King doesn't. And when they were hashing out how they wanted this haunting to go, Spielberg's idea was, look, we've already had the psychological version where maybe there's no ghost at all. I don't want to do that. I want to be big spectacle. I want to have explosions and actions and all kinds of special effects shots and really go out there. And King was like, mm, I don't feel like that's Shirley Jackson's novel. I don't feel like that's what I'm writing. King was the one who's like, hey, yeah, we shouldn't have faces. 
come out of windows and molding and ceiling beams like King was the restrained one here? Well, you know, if you look at the TV version of The Shining, like this one looks a lot more like that (laughs) than it does Kubrick. But again, what Spielberg said is he really wanted to emulate Kubrick's Shining. And I don't know how that equals giant special effects shots and the kinds of things we're here to talk about. But at some point... They just parted ways, creative differences, and King had to wait a couple more years to get his revenge and make the TV movie that probably is better than this. I would like to believe that it would be easy to top Haunting 1999. And Spielberg, you know, he has a lot of projects offered to him. He ended up not making this. He kind of did what he did with Poltergeist. I'm going to ghost direct this. I'm going to hire somebody to do it, but I'll stand behind them and gently suggest everything that they should do. And in this case, instead of Toby Hooper, we get Jan Debon. Well, he's used to having smart action people stand behind him. He is more known as a cinematographer than a director, although he did do Speed and Twister. And Speed 2 and Laura (laughs) Croft 2, like those awesome sequels. Well, Laura Croft hadn't happened yet, but everything else had. And yeah, I think he was at this point more director than DP. Well, he may be at this point directing more, but I'm saying looking back from the year 2021 at his history in film, I think his greatest contributions were as cameraman. You know what? I'm not that big on speed. We haven't done it yet, and I know some people will tell you it's an action movie classic. I saw it once, and I don't remember having a high opinion. Yep, I'll be one of those people saying action movie classic. Yeah, I haven't seen it since the 90s, but yeah, that's my feeling that it would be considered a classic. My memory was it wasn't that great, and I absolutely hated Twister and Speed 2. I mean, no one defends that one. Never saw it. So the fact that he's going to this kind of feels like going to Michael Bay. You know, it's like, oh, you pick someone unqualified. Someone that says, oh, yes, I want to make a Kubrick film, but that's never going to happen when you hire Jan de Bond. Yeah, never once did I think about Kubrick during this film. <laughs> and yet, when I watched the bonus materials, that's all he would talk about was Kubrick this, Kubrick that. Subtle and freaky. That was the directive that Jan de Bont said everything would be subtle. 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 I know. Get ready to laugh. Subtle and freaky. Okay. Yeah. I mean, some of those carvings are freaky, but nothing is subtle in this film. No. And it doesn't have to be. I want to put it out there. I think Spielberg is right. Why try to do what Robert Wise did in 1963? I mean, there is a movie that's subtle and freaky. No. Be loud and gregarious and show us the house is alive. I think that that would be cool. Yeah, I've never seen this before I watched it for this review, but my guess was, I should have said it the last show because no one will believe me, but my guess was, oh, this will be the real haunted house version. Like, I talked about that 63 one, where's all the plastic skeletons jumping out of closets? I figured that is what this one will be. Lots of ghosts and weird things going on in the house for real. Yeah, and again, Poltergeist is that. That's one of my favorite childhood movies, haunted house movies. If Spielberg wants to remake that movie, if he wants to go in that direction, even with Jan de Bont, I was kind of excited for this movie. I do remember a lot of hype being pushed on the fact that, well, Spielberg was trying to build his own house, DreamWorks. You know, he had just announced that he was running a movie studio at this point. And so he was looking for properties that would fatten, you know, their filmography and give him a big hit. So I think that, yeah, he had done well producing a haunted house movie in the 80s. 
He wanted to see that done again here in the 1990s. And I remember a lot of good press about the set. All that I remember about the hype of this movie is, boy, you won't believe it when you get to see the inside of this house. Oh, I I don't believe it when we get to that merry-go-round room. (laughs) You're right. The Oscar winner, Eugenio Zanetti, was hired. He had just won for restoration. He had also done, I mean, it's not a great film, but you definitely remember the gothic neon hospital in the original Flatliners. That was all him. The Living Paintings and What Dreams May Come, stupid movie, but it had a cool look to it. Again, they got some really good technicians that would lead you to believe that this was going to be a very decadent, elaborate haunted house larger in scale than any seen before. Maybe on paper, but I remember the trailers for this piece of shit. I remember thinking this looked awful from the get-go, and I liked Speed, and I liked Twister, and I knew Jan de Bont was behind this one. I never knew about the Stephen King connection. Being DreamWorks, I knew about the Steven Spielberg connection, but this thing from the trailers, and I had a problem with this movie. Anyone should. Yeah, who doesn't? Particularly with its star, Liam Neeson. Liam was going all around any interview, anybody who would talk to him on the street, and go, I'm retired. I'm done acting. Why? Star Wars and all that blue screen CGI, it's not acting anymore. I like acting and I'm done. That's true. This was the same summer as Phantom Menace. Just three months later. Less than three months, actually. And... Phantom Menace actually filmed before this. George Lucas has very long post-production periods where he brings people back and refilms. So after shooting Phantom Menace and not liking the blue screen, he goes and makes The Haunting. And he's complaining about George Lucas's use of CGI? Really? (laughs) And he never once mentions this piece of shit CGI when complaining about his retirement? Are you saying that Fountain coming to life drove him to retirement? I mean, that's horrifyingly real looking. What are you talking about? (laughs) I'm saying Lucas may have overused CGI, but at least it looked good. This movie looked like shit. I just mocked it when it came out in July. I didn't see it until video, and I only saw it just so I could have a little bit of schadenfreude about holier-than-thou Neeson and his hatred of CGI. I didn't expect it to be good. I wasn't expecting it to be as bad as it was, though. Jesus Christ. Are we just doing recommends right now? Is that what we're doing? (laughs) (laughs) You're now explaining something to me, because I previously you described The Haunting 1999 as the worst movie you ever saw, which, admittedly, no one's going to say it's great, but I'm like, there are so many in the running for that. How could this even compare? You were offended. You were offended by what the star had said that seemed to slight Star Wars. And so you came with that chip on your shoulder. Yes, but coming back, I had a chip on my shoulder that was put there by this movie in 1999. Worst movie I've ever seen? We'll get to that in our review, I guess. Yeah. I mean, here's the interesting thing. It was a modest hit. It made $100 million. That's not a flop. But because it cost so much, because it was an $80 million production, and you got to do advertisements and what have you, and because it was so chaotic, I mean, the 
cinematographer walked after the first week and there was infighting and rewriting and I mean you can see from this movie the way that it doesn't even come together there were so many ideas and cooks in the kitchen Spielberg and Jan de Bont don't speak to each other after this is done and basically Jan de Bont's career is over after this is done he did do the Laura Croft sequel but he has not made a movie since I do think that Spielberg when he declares you over watch out Michael Bay <laughs> there's no future for you Megan Fox <laughs> Yeah. And Razzies, too. Should be said that everyone piled on. It did get five nominations. No wins. It was the year of Will Smith's Wild Wild West. And apparently that was worse, at least according to the Razzie committee. I haven't seen that one, but it can't be this bad. (laughs) I actually don't remember it being that bad, but maybe one day we'll cover it. Better than this. But let's get into it then. Uh, Arnie, if you're not afraid, give him the plot and we'll find out about Haunting 1999. Liam Neeson is David Marrow, a doctor performing a study on human responses to fear. He skirts ethics by pretending to hold an insomnia study at the spooky mansion called Hill House. His subjects are Luke, played by Owen Wilson, not to be confused by Owen, played by Luke Wilson. I know, it confused me. (laughs) Fashionista Theo, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Mousy Eleanor, played by Lily Taylor. The first night, Marrow tells his subjects the history of the house. It was built over a hundred years earlier by textile tycoon Hugh Crane. He hoped he and his wife would raise children there, but after several miscarriages and no successful births, Crane's wife killed herself. Crane lived the rest of his life in the house. That night, the guests hear loud banging in the house. Eleanor begins to see ghosts of children, and the words, Welcome home, Eleanor, appear on a wall written in blood. Through investigation of the house, Eleanor finds out Crane used child labor in his mills. Also, after his wife's death, Crane brought dozens of orphans into the house. He'd torture them and kill them so he could have an eternal family. Those children's spirits are now trapped in the house, as is the malevolent ghost of Crane himself. Eleanor also finds out Crane remarried. His wife became pregnant, then left the insane man, and that woman gave birth to Eleanor's mother. Eleanor is Crane's granddaughter. She becomes convinced she can free the trapped spirits of the children and follows several visions, many of which nearly kill her. Marrow finally realizes the house really is haunted, so he reveals the true nature of his study to the subjects. They try to escape, but can't break out of the locked gate. Eleanor returns to the fireplace where the children had been cremated. The flu decapitates Luke, but Eleanor gets the spirit of Crane to reveal himself. As he had a large brass door with an inscription that all who stand before it will be judged, when Crane arrived, he was judged, and his soul taken into the door. The children's souls were released, and Eleanor dies. As the sun comes up, Marrow and Theo leave, and credits roll. It's amazing how rarely you say the words Theo in that plot summary. Like, why is Catherine Zeta-Jones even in this movie? I don't know. But I want to start by giving this film a big compliment. When I saw this before, I'd read reviews. I knew it was a remake of some film I never thought I'd see. Now that I have seen it, I don't think they could have found a better actress for Eleanor than Lily Taylor. She is the 90s personification of all that that actress did with Eleanor in the first film. It takes a while to get there. I agree with you. Like, by the end, she is, whoever that actress was in that original one, like, she is gracing those levels of melodrama and overacting. But in the opening here, I find it kind of restrained. I'm like, oh, I, I don't feel like she's nearly as broken as that other Eleanor that we discussed because the acting isn't as over the top in the beginning. 
No, but she's always a mousy type of personality, quiet, put upon. Not always. I saw her in the indie film just prior to this. I shot Andy Warhol, where she played the pistol-packing dyke. Definitely not always mousy. But I get what you're saying. She definitely can play mousy when she wants to. It's in her wheelhouse. But this is not the same Nell. I just want to say that previously, what we saw both in the book and in the original movie, was a character that was already haunted. From from the get-go, she was haunted by paranormal events in her past and by the fact that her her mother had instilled maybe guilt in her so deeply that whenever she wanted to act on something, she heard knocking on the walls. She heard threats from beyond the grave that she better not step out and try to be herself. I don't know what's keeping this Nell caged up in 1999 in this apartment. Yeah, that original Nell, it was very obvious that her mother gave her a ton of issues. And this one, like, she mentions her mom a couple of times, 11 years. Like, I don't know if I would have understood her backstory with her mother if I hadn't seen that original one. It feels very downplayed, like they're going to use that same setup, but it's just, it's not going to have the same effect on the character, it feels like. No, if I hadn't seen that first film, this opening with Eleanor and her sister... And her bratty-ass nephew banging on the wall with a cane. (laughs) Eleanor, I have to pee. Would have meant nothing to me. That kid needs to be slapped. I couldn't believe that. He is so bad. I agree. It's Urkel-level awful. It really is. And the fact that he's both mocking what Eleanor's mother did and saying, guess what I'm going to do to you? (laughs) If you're my nanny... Yeah, it's some kind of problem child sequel here in the beginning, and definitely not scary. And I don't know, again, what we really found out about that Nell was that she could never leave her mother because she was made to believe that the world was going to get her. It rains rocks, that there was, whether it really happened or not, she believed she was touched by a phenomenon and needed to hide from the world. What excuse is there for this woman who's clearly in her 30s to have never been holding a job, never going out there. I just don't get it. I don't see where the damage is. She had to take care of her mother. That sucks. 11 years. But she should have been able to go to college. She should have been able to have life partners. She should know a lot more about the world. I needed some of that over-the-top stage acting. <laughs> like that, as bad as that was, it told me all about this Nell character. This version, yeah, I agree. I don't know anything about her. I don't know what motivates her. I don't know what her issues are. Yeah, I guess you just write it off as she was very devoted to her mother and wouldn't leave her side. And now that she's been dead for two years, her sister, Jane, Virginia Madsen, and her husband are going to sell the place out from under her, which means she has nowhere to go but be their housemaid she can sleep in that car that they're going to deduct the price of that car from her part of the earnings for the apartment i thought that was pretty slimy yeah i mean this can be kind of fun it has like a darkly humorous quality this feels like a tales from the crypt maybe kind of set up here but if you're telling me that this is well poltergeist and it's going to have that family dynamic that sort of made the ghost of suburbia real definitely not feeling that vibe and i wanted to like nell and i I just didn't. I usually like Lily Taylor, but I'm just not clicking with her issues right now. I'm projecting her reasons for being the way she is based on other movies I've seen. Like, she was too sheltered. Her mother 
emotionally abused her, it's a subservience, this, that, and the other, but the movie's giving me none of it. Right. And yeah, I like Lily Taylor usually when I see her, and here it's reminding me of how much I didn't like the same character last time. And before we leave her, she seems to have, you know, weeks before she's going to be kicked out on the street, and she gets a mysterious phone call that it will be the secret of this movie. They'll wait all the way till the end to reveal, but the house itself is dialing her up. The ghost (laughs) children are saying, please come help us. We've been in captivity all these years. And I guess your mom was just too much of a lazy ass to get out of bed and come help us before. Maybe you won't be. And your sister won't help us, but we'll give you $900 if you come. Now, that house doesn't even really have cell service, let alone an actual phone line for those ghosts to use. (laughs) They're ghosts. They don't need a real phone line. Right. Agreed. You think Casper has a cell phone plan? Now I can talk about something that I actually like. I don't like this beginning. I don't really like this now. But I actually like the tack that they're going to take here. That the scientist isn't gathering people to explore the psychic phenomenon of the house. He's not trying to prove whether Hill House is haunted or not. Liam Neeson's David Marrow is instead trying to rid modern man of primal fear instincts. And I'm not exactly sure how studying insomniacs (laughs) is going to do that, but I do like the idea that he has something very else intended in his experiments than seeing these people be attacked by spirits. I'm going to agree with his boss or whoever that is, though. This is unethical as hell. Like, in any modern study, you have to tell the people they're in a study, which, yes, skews it. But, like, yeah, you cannot do this. This is highly unethical. You have to tell them they're in a study, but I don't think you have to tell them what they're in a study about. I think he is right. You don't tell the mice they're in a maze. I studied this a little bit recently, and I do believe, yes, you don't have to tell the purpose of an experiment to someone if you think that that's going to create a bias or influence the outcome. But if you're going to harm people, that committee wouldn't allow this process to go forward. This man is the head of the department. He is saying this is unethical. He should just be telling Liam Neeson, you're not doing this. It's worth pointing out, behind them, as they're having this discussion, there are all kinds of photographs and things. Among them is the Stanford Prison Experiment, a very famous and highly unethical... It's really the reason why we now have these laws about what kinds of experiments psychologists can conduct. Because Stanford thought it would be really brilliant to turn students into prisoners and guards, and it it was very brutal and dehumanizing. And like you pointed out, Stuart, he's picking all insomniacs, like a bad sample. Like, again, I don't understand the science of this, but I thought the setup was going to be like he was going to make up stuff about this house and have little booby traps to pop things out and make them think it was haunted. I really thought that was the direction once this revelation comes that this is all a psychological experiment. I think what he's saying is that they're suggestible. I don't have to be William Castle and rig skeletons on wires and put the tingler down on the chairs and all of that because these people will do it to themselves. I think the point is how much does the fear response prove to be contagious? I don't know. I wish there was a little bit more about this because I actually think it's an interesting hook for the story. And unfortunately, we get two scenes and it will, you know, he hands out a couple flyers and mazes, but I don't think that there's ever really any consideration as to what Mero hopes to get out of this. No, how did he know who was suggestible? How did he know 
Were all these people seeing the same therapy group and he had access to their files? They interviewed. I mean, you do have... He has research assistants. It should be said there are new characters here. This girl, Mary, has talked to all the applicants. There's another scene where you see these people interviewed on banks of TVs. So, like, they've, they've gone through a thorough research and, and made sure that not only are these people all insomniacs, but they fit the criterion of whatever this experiment is looking to do. But did Eleanor interview? I thought she got the phone call, but did she then go to the interview? Yeah, the phone call was from a ghost that said, hey, you should look up in your personal section, the classifieds in your newspaper, and call that study and apply. Right. Because she is so mousy, because she has been under the thumb of her family for so long, the presumption is that's exactly what Mero is looking for. I agree. They missed several steps. And you can just feel in the choppiness of the editing, we don't get a clean layout of what happens here. Somebody came in and said, eh, too much exposition. We came here for the thrills. And they just reduced all of this setup to some half hazy, understandable gobbledygook. And that's too bad, because I feel like a good setup would probably get me in the mood for this, much better than seeing the repeats of Nell driving to the gates and the scary groundskeeper. Bruce Dern, I mean, it gets a lot scarier. (laughs) Here's the problem for me, though, is because we get this setup that this is all just going to be an experiment. And so my expectation, again, I thought the way this would play out, there'd be some spooky things, and then something would happen, and Liam Neeson would be like, hmm, I didn't plan that. I didn't do that one. Hmm, that's mysterious. So I thought, like, the Dudleys, oh, these are just actors he's hired. I thought he's trying to set up this real spooky environment, and maybe they don't even know anything about this house or that it has a history of haunting, but... I guess it does. Like, the Dudleys are still the same Dudleys from that first film. Like, they don't stay there at night. No one in the town comes close to that house. But it's throwing me off because I'm like, oh, no, these are actors that Mero hired. I thought the exact same thing because Mrs. Dudley has her monologue. And she gives this monologue to Eleanor. And then when she tries to give it again to Theo, Eleanor is stepping on her lines. And... Miss Dudley looks like a pissed off actress who's like, wait, these are my lines. And she's going to get the last word in. I'm like, these are obvious plants. No, if they were plants, the movie has cut out the scene telling us that. <laughs> yeah, they've cut them almost completely out of this movie. I, you could you could almost get rid of the Dudleys, but they need someone to open the big gates and bring us into this, well... Half of it's an incredible set, and then half of it is an actual exterior castle that you can find in Upper West England. And I do enjoy some of these interiors that they created. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Hearst Castle in Central California. I've been on all the tours there. Love that place and the Winchester House. Yeah, that's the one they're going for. Yeah, that definitely, like, building rooms, a crazy person just adding rooms to the house, that is the Winchester story. Right, yeah, just for, in case people don't know, it's in San Jose, and it is the actual, like, Winchester gun. Yeah, the gun people. (laughs) Yeah, those people, because those guns killed so many Indians, the woman that was sort of the inheritor of, of all that, the matron of that family, in building her house, was afraid those Indian ghosts were going to come and get her, so she kind of went crazy and just kept building on room after room, hoping that that in some way would distra- distract them from home invasion? I don't, I don't know. She had this belief, a superstition, that if construction ever stopped on the house, she would die. And so she just kept building and building staircases to nowhere i've been to the house it is something to see they'll walk you through the whole thing it takes like an hour to walk through the house 
Yeah. Yeah, and there was a movie made about that a few years ago. Don't see it. It's awful. It's bad. <laughs> I agree. But yeah, a fun idea. It was what Stephen King and Spielberg kept going back to is like, this is what we want our house to be. It is mentioned that even though this house, I think, originally was built to support a family, when the wife of Hugh Crane died, he went crazy and just kept building rooms for children he would never have. And so that was the concept of like someone that just felt like more and more children when there was nobody there to even produce one. And then we get the introduction of Catherine Zeta-Jones as Theo, who was bisexual in the last one. This one, it's almost queer baiting, isn't it? It's like, we're going to say we have a bisexual character and she's going to mention having a boyfriend and a girlfriend and then... That's the end of it. But then she's just going to flirt with Owen Wilson the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are scenes and they didn't make the cut. And who knows if it's because they felt like PG-13, that might be too provocative to have a younger audience learn about such things. It was the 90s. Lesbianism was about titillation. That was R-rated basic instinct kind of stuff. People just weren't mature enough to handle that. But they did try to form the idea that and I think it does come through that Theo, at the very least, is interested in Nell for some damn reason. Yeah, I have no idea because this Theo is not a psychic. She's just a insomniac. So it's not like she could read her minds and maybe feel bad for her or something like that other film. Like, yeah, I don't know why she's giving her a look every once in a while. I We're told, I guess, Theo's an artist. Like, she's, she's got all the fine clothes and everything. I don't know why she would go for Nell. Yeah, again, maybe it is because you're the opposite, right? You're not like anyone that I meet when I travel the world, someone that's never seen the world, someone that is clearly hiding and I can draw out. We could sit here and speculate, but in the end, the relationship is so underdeveloped, not worth it. Underdeveloped, I just want to point out again, because she's in the background of a lot of scenes, you would have to keep her in the movie. But I don't think that this character, Theo, does one thing. I don't think she accomplishes anything in this movie. She is a constant spectator that never moves the plot forward. She doesn't even get the good arguments of the last one. There's no good antagonism. And Lily Taylor's Eleanor, you know, last time they made it a bit of a love triangle. And once Eleanor started to fall for Marrow, then Theo got jealous and mean. Here, Eleanor isn't seemed to be into anybody. She's into the house. Yeah, Theo seems into her a little bit, but never do we get the antagonism. Catherine Zeta-Jones is an actress I dislike, but yet when she's in stuff, I think she brings a fun lightness to it. I just don't think she's a very good actress. And so here, I'm liking the energy she brings, even though I'm like, what movie are you in? And why are you in this movie, to be more pointed? I... Theo in the last one was a threat to Nell. You know, maybe that's untrendy at this point to make lesbianism a threat, but that was what it was. For Nell, it was like, oh, maybe I do have these feelings, and bang, 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 every time I try to act on that, mom is banging on the wall. Here, there's nothing to say that she couldn't pursue this relationship if she wanted. And I guess the actresses said, don't worry about the cutscenes. We didn't do anything too much, and it felt highly exploitive and not relevant at all. 
how do you get highly exploitive out of we didn't do too much? Yeah. Well, I, you know, exploitive in the sense that it's even happening here. It's here to titillate because in 1999, lesbians, ooh, it went along with the psychic powers. She was weird. She was queer, not only because of her sexuality, but because she had this ability to sense things. And they've completely excised that from Theo. Like, now she really doesn't serve any purpose. She's not investigating the house in any way. And she doesn't even want to be cured of her insomnia. She says, you know, staying up, it makes me creative. If you take that away, I probably won't be an artist anymore. Which she did not describe insomnia. Insomnia, you are not creative. You're a zombie. Like, I've had insomnia. My wife suffers from it. Like, you are never creative when you have insomnia. You lie there, like, just staring at a wall, wishing you could sleep. It depends. Sometimes I have had creative insomnia. I've also had the other kind. But sometimes my insomnia is just... After lying in bed for a while, I just get up and I'm exhausted, but I will maybe sometimes have good ideas to clean the house. <laughs> it's always a good idea to clean the house. Again, what is the hope that Meryl can get something out of her? I, You're right. The love triangle is missing from the last one. I just, it's a research subject of one. I feel like Meryl only cares about Nell and why anybody else is along for the ride and their sleep issues. Irrelevant. She's the only character when we get Owen Wilson as Luke Sanderson. Like, what's the purpose of him? Luke had a purpose in that last film. He was going to get that house and... He owned the house. Yeah. Yeah. This t- It's just another patient who's not going to do anything. And I know that Owen Wilson wasn't very big into his career when doing this. But come on, this guy had been in Armageddon in a pretty large role. He'd been in Anaconda. Stop, stop. He was in Wes Anderson movies. I knew him as a Wes Anderson yes, guy at this point. Yeah. <laughs> well, there weren't that many Wes Anderson films out at that point. There was Rushmore and there was Bottle Rocket, but I feel like he deserves more than this. There's no woes in there. We don't get any of those classic Owen Wilson moments. He says wow at least twice. I did have to have subtitles turned on for this. Did he? Okay. I was listening for it, but I missed him. It was almost like this was a mumblecore movie to me. The effects were very loud, but everybody was really talking low. And when I had the subtitles on, I wouldn't even know people were speaking, and I'd see words on the bottom. That did happen to me a few times. I'm like, I saw words and I didn't hear them, though, and I had to rewind. But at one point, he says, wow, like twice in a row in the subtitles. I'm like, there's the Owen Wilson wow. (laughs) I missed it. He's the fun presence. I feel like you can have some comic relief. It should be him. It shouldn't be Catherine Zeta-Jones, who, by the way, hasn't been that far into her career either. I think she had Entrapment and did a Titanic TV movie. Zorro. Zorro's her thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. I've never seen one of those, but all right. Don't. Really? I mean, her big breakout was Mask of Zorro the year before. Yeah, she was a rising star and very soon would become Michael Douglas's baby maker. But at this point, they're catching her on the cusp of people would know who she is, but she wouldn't necessarily pack the theaters. But what is, again, this house, like trying to understand her, you get this scene with Nell and Theo like running through it and there's like this spinning merry-go-round music carousel room with mirrors and then some like room that's flooded with like books you jump on to get across the water. Like it's very jarring because I'm like, okay, we're going for that old style Winchester thing. But then we have like uh, carnival rooms. I love the house. But I don't understand how anything that got designed serves the purpose 
of the ghosts that we're going to encounter. Like, what is in the fireplace? Where do those book steps go to? Why does spitting around in that room do anything? Is that the heart of the house? Nothing that I associate with Hill House serves what they spent all of that money and time building those sets to do. I don't get it. Yeah, there's no dialogue about like all the angles being off and the doors off center. Like that gave some character to the house. This one, it feels like a bunch of artificial character to me. It's like someone that, hey, look at me, I'm tough. I got some tribal tattoos, like that real generic looking. That's how this house feels. Like it wants to be tough, but I'm not buying it. I'll agree. The outside of this house is amazing. That castle. Yes. And the fact that I could tell, like that was real, you know, again, in this movie, where they're going to use such bad effects to bad effect, to see that and realize that that is a really their building, gorgeous. The inside, first of all, everything's kind of brown and monotone. It gives almost a sepia feel to the movie. But beyond that, the design feels more like a discarded Tim Burton idea. Tim Burton would have taken this and everything would have had a maniacal purpose that was in some way related to the psyche. It's like somebody came across an unused Tim Burton set and was like, yeah, we're going to just use this. Who cares what it means? Yeah. Well, here's what I actually suggest. Knowing what I know about the production, there probably were pivotal scenes that happened in that spinning room. There probably were major revelations about stepping on that book, opened up a secret passage or what have you. It got cut. There was so much about what they first shot that got reshot and tested and then reshot. And they were filming this movie up until a few weeks before it came out in July of 1999. They were constantly changing everything. I got to know, is there any behind the scenes stuff? Because the funniest thing to me is there's a couple more characters we've mentioned that they come to this house, Todd and Mary, assistants to Dr. Marrow. And like Mary is playing like a piano and a string breaks and like hits her in the eye, cuts her face. So Todd's got to rush her to the hospital. Dr. Mara, call me when you get there. Like we never get that call. These two actors never come back. Like, they are totally gone from this film. It's so I'm just waiting for them the whole time to come back at some point, and they never do. Oh, God, I thought the eye was gone, and I was like, no, please don't show me. See, that just is always going to be a grabber. We needed something to happen. This movie has the mentality. We're not going to do it in shadows. This will not be about whispering voiceover and zooming in on walls and what have you. We're going to show you shit. And so it's a, you know, a first kill. That's the way I would treat it. She doesn't die, but it gets the body count going, lets you know that this house is out for blood. And yeah, you would think that they would have some purpose. I guess what it tells you is that Dr. Marrow's now going to have to do this all on his own. And if we understood more about his experiment... I mean, there's only three people. How hard can it be? <laughs> I, I agree with you. It feels like he's got a couple Xeroxes to hand out. And by and large, I don't see anything else going on. Like, he tells everyone the history of the house. It's a little bit different. And then tells Luke an aside about how Hugh Crane's first wife actually killed herself and tries to see how that planting that seed might. Again, I'm not really, this is not an experiment on gossip or communication, but I guess he's saying that the suggestibility of that is going to infect all the players. It's really a horrible scientific study. It's a horrible plot device. And the fact that Marrow loses both of his TAs with this one accident and he's left there alone. And yeah, he hands out some papers, but 
if this is going to be our reason for being there, and he's going to skirt ethics to do it, I needed to see almost a mad doctor kind of thing. I needed to see a mm-hmm. villain. I wanted to see him keeping there beyond the point of danger the way we saw with that first movie. As it is, we asked, why is Catherine Zeta-Jones here? Why is Oscar winner Liam Neeson here? Well, because he's a friend of Spielberg and because, you know, it was a good part in the original. You would think that if they were doing more of what the original did, then his interaction with Nell would be important. I don't think they have too many scenes together, honestly, and never in the context of I'm guiding you through my research. But yeah, she is the key to him understanding. Again, this is all done in dialogue, but what I heard him say was, you know, you can't pass the SAT by sweating too much on your palms. We have to find a way of ridding ourselves of fear responses. And so I guess he wants to see a subject that has all these fear responses with the idea that maybe at another time, (laughs) at a different house, he could find a way to get that person to stop acting fearful. It's one thing to be have some fear when you're taking the SATs, but when ghosts are trying to kill you, or you believe that because those ideas have been planted in you, like, let your palms sweat a little bit. Like, again, I, his methodology is not very good. How exactly are they supposed to be afraid? Here's this house that has this history, but nobody ever, until the events of this film, started thinking ghosts there. Is it just, ooh, big house, scary. Let's get some insomniacs and just see if they're jittery. Yeah, the idea is that if people aren't going to, you know, sleep well, if their brain's not functioning and they're wandering around a creepy house, I can get the ball rolling by telling them the story about Hugh Crane, which is a historical truth. He is telling them what he knows about the house, that it was built by this man who is now in the textile empire. Like, they've, they've changed a bit. They've changed a lot, frankly, when we find out more about Hugh Crane. But from the original text, he is now a textile emperor who wants to hear the laughter of children. And so he married a woman. She gave birth to a stillborn. And when she died, he decided to carve a bunch of children around the place to replace the children he didn't have. Is each carving one of the children he killed or were the carvings there when the house was originally built in anticipation of children? I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm very confused, and I don't know if we want to talk about it now or later, but, like, we're told here that he loved children. He wanted children's laughter filling that house, but then he, like, kills a bunch of children. And tortures them? Yeah, that's not laughter. Yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah, again, and if I could get a copy on the original screenplay, I'd like to believe that it was coherent and that we would understand what the story was supposed to be before it got mangled and disjointed and and rewritten and changed to what this has become, which is a nonsensical series of shocks. And although I'm going to still argue that this set is cool, I like it, the CGI. Oh man, when we finally get the late night knocking, it was a Spielberg directive that he was like, you know what would be really scary is if like little girl faces come through the sheets and the drapes, and we really just get to see all these ghost children swooshing around. I will say like when we see that curtain blowing and i guess it is a cgi face in there i'm like okay that's not bad but then as soon as we see like really weird like elongated fetus forms crawling along those sheets i don't know how else to describe it oh boy it's bad really bad it's awful i mean remember i mentioned the movie anaconda that's the level of cgi most movies were having at this point lucas was one of the few 
since Spielberg pioneered it with Jurassic Park, making CGI look real, and then Lucas did it with Phantom Menace, but in between and around those films was a lot of shit. Yeah. And this is shit. It's not much better than Josie turning into a doorknob on Twin Peaks. It really is not. They should have realized here this was too fake. If you're trying to be scary, and I have to assume that they're wanting this to be a horror movie of some sort. I mean, I get it's PG-13. PG-13 horror, yeah. (laughs) But if it's called The Haunting and you have a green poster, just because green is spooky, I have to assume you want to scare me. Nothing is going to pull me out of scares more than bad CGI. You mentioned Casper, Jacob. It is almost like Casper just popped up in the middle of this and is like, (laughs) boo. It is not scary. Yeah, I I will say the more effective things, and there's no CGI, it's just sets, is they'll show those wood carvings of children's faces, and they're looking one direction, and then they'll cut to nail, and then they cut back to them, and they're facing the other direction. Like, that's kind of effective. Again, PG-13 horror, like, that's kind of the stuff I wish that original did more, where just weird things would happen in the background. But man, this really is going to become a CGI fest, and it is no better for it. Again, the house, the set looks great, but when you add the CGI, it undoes all of that work. Like, all of that work now tells you you're in Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yeah. That's why Owen Wilson is here, right? To mock it. Like, he's talking about Teletubbies. He's bringing up how stupid these things look. And I also thought maybe he is psychic, because he's the one, like, guessing, oh, this is all an experiment we're part of, and oh, Crane really killed these children. Like, he seems to know, like, everything that's going to be revealed later on. Well, that feels like pages that were handed to him, like, a week before this movie came out, saying, we need, we need... To, we need to understand what that they understand what's going on here. Script changes. Again, this movie, it didn't start out this way. I don't know what that original script was, but it was better than this. Yeah, what's in the fireplace? Like a big deal is made <laughs> about she sees something in the fireplace and it's not the flu, but we never see it. It never comes out, never plays a role. I wonder if that was too gruesome because that's where he was cremating bodies is in the fireplace. So I thought it was just like the lion's head was alive or something in there. Like it growled at her or something. I couldn't even tell what we saw in there. Mm -hmm. And again, suggestibility is fine, but that was the last haunting. This is Spielberg saying, no, we're going to show you up in your face. We've got the technology. We've got the budget to really put it out there. And I think what is interesting what you bring up, Arnie, is true, is that this is not the right time to go for realistic CGI. That if he wanted to do this, he probably would have done himself a favor by waiting five or six more years so that it wouldn't look so rudimentary. I mean, this is, if you've seen The Rock and The Mummy, The Scorpion King one, where you know what I'm talking about if you've seen it. Like, it's, oh, it is that level bad. Oh, it looks so lawnmower, man. It's hysterical. <laughs> And this is no better. Yeah, it should have been all practical, right? Do puppets, do anything that you can, dress up actors, put them on wires. The poltergeist effects, let's be clear, some of those didn't hold up, but they still managed to work, right? You know, like there's still things, the clown and the stake crawling across the counter, the guy pulling his face off. I feel like... That one doesn't work. (laughs) Okay, maybe that one didn't hold up. But I feel like a lot of that stuff still plays to the 70-year-old in me. And I don't feel like any of this stuff would scare us anybody, a 70-year-old or anyone. 
I feel so bad if there's adults now who are nostalgic for the CGI because they were seven when it came out. I would love to hear from them because, again, I can't imagine even the young audience that is highly susceptible to horror movies and doesn't know the tropes and the cliches. I don't think this one's going to work on them. I can't imagine this film working on anybody. It is two hours long of people walking around sets and having CGI move in the corner or sometimes in the center of the frame. Yeah, it feels like disjointed, but they are occasionally doing Shirley Jackson. We do get a callback to Come Home, Eleanor. There is some vandalism on the portrait of Hugh Crane and on the stairwell, as well as some red footsteps that are going to take her to a study. We are getting the idea that the house is fixated on Nell, and we'll find out quite literally this is her home because her family lineage goes all the way back to Hugh's second wife, This house is literally asking her to come home and solve this problem. Again, I think that she should have traded places with her sister for this. Like, her sister was such a bitch, this should all just be a trick and bring the sister here for a bait and switch. Yeah, Virginia Madsen was too busy fighting Candyman, I guess. (laughs) That was a decade earlier. (laughs) She didn't do anything after. (laughs) But here's where we, I feel like up to this point, I'm just going to put it out there. Up to this point, it's Tales from the Crypt. I know that this is not scary, but there's something about the visual palette. There's something about the playing of cliches that I find kind of comfort food. I'm like, eh, I can watch this. There's nothing really bad about this. It's just not very good. It's certainly not scary. And then when we hit on the idea of the children... This is where the movie really tanks. When she goes down there and finds all these ledgers, help me out here. So Hugh Crane, because his wife couldn't give him children, or maybe none of that's even true, because Hugh Crane is a creepo, he is having all his child labor, his sweatshop labor that doesn't have parents to supervise them. Something that Luke guessed was happening as well. (laughs) Right. Come over to be executed in a manner that, yes, I presume it was in the fireplace, Arnie, but I guess PG-13 won't allow us to see the nasty way that might have happened. First of all, I got to say, this ledger, and this just goes to this production, we've we've trashed the CGI so much. Let's trash some more props. Like, this stuff is supposed to be old. Like, we're going to see a photo album later. I'm like, oh, those were just newly printed. Like, (laughs) there's no age to this paper in this ledger. There's no age to these photos. Like, it makes it look even cheaper than the bad CGI might. It's really proppy looking. Like, I've never pulled into this film because it's so realistic. I, again, but like Tales from the Crypt, I do make the argument that like... Tales from the Crypt is lighthearted. This is not. I don't think it's what they're going for. But by being made this way, by having Owen Wilson and Catherine Zeta-Jones and even Neeson being hammy in the way that they are, I think they forfeited an actual psychological scariness. Shining, this ain't. But maybe this is Demon Knight. Maybe this is, like, Frighteners. No. No, maybe it's TV Shining. (laughs) No, no, because that really, they believed in that as well. I feel like there is a knowing comedic zest to the way a lot of this is coming off. I wish I got that vibe. Yeah, I disagree strongly. I don't think that there's any intentional humor here. There's no mirth here at all. Nothing on screen. Oh, Luke. Luke totally is. I mean, he has like moments where he's popping sleeping pill. I don't even know what that little dispenser is into his mouth. I think that's just like candy. It was like Pez. Yeah, I thought it was candy. But that's Owen Wilson. You give Owen... I would love to see Owen Wilson do Hamlet. 
because I think it would be a funny Hamlet. I don't think he can do straight. He's just doing him. That doesn't mean that this has a air of playfulness. Sure it does. They cast him. They must have gone for that quality. Like, that's what they're going for. Yeah, for one character, though, you have a comic relief character, but I don't feel like they're, if they want to lean into camp at all, I, I don't think that was intentional. Well, I do know that part of the real fight behind the scene when Spielberg and DeBont were really going at it was that Spielberg was incredibly unhappy with the dailies and the fact that the horror wasn't coming through. And keep in mind, he totally took Poltergeist away from Toby Hooper and went in there and I believe directed 80% of that movie. It's interesting. I think it's only because, I don't know, he was busy with... At this time, it would have been, what, Private Ryan and other projects. He was working up doing Minority Report. He had other things going. Maybe he couldn't. Running DreamWorks, I should say, having a new movie studio to run, he couldn't suddenly micromanage one production. But I do know that he was very unhappy that this movie wasn't as scary as he was insisting it be. Well, part of the problem is going to this ledger where, oh, here's families and a, a 10-year-old's crossed out and a 12-year-old and, and another 10 year So Crane, trying to figure out this plot, which is the most horrific thing, even with all this bad CGI, is he was kidnapping kids. These were child laborers working, like, sewing stuff for him, making... Yeah. I don't understand. And then he would take them and, like, was he paying off the parents? Like, wouldn't people notice all the kids disappearing? No, they were orphans. Yeah. Specifically, they didn't have parents. They call out, though, that there's parents listed in this ledger, too, though. Yeah, I don't think they were. I think when you look at the ledger that, I mean, I don't know. I think that the kids that he selected didn't have the last names of the parents. There were parents with children, and then there were kids that were just laborers. And I think he was targeting easy marks that he could... There is that many orphans in this town. Oh, no. I mean, that's historically accurate. I mean, if you look at labor at the early part of the Industrial Revolution, child coal mines. I mean, we changed the laws, but children were abused often in the workplace for many decades. No, I get that. But um, if he loved kids and wanted to fill his house with their laughter, why have the child labor? I guess because he also wants to be rich. None of it makes sense is what I'm saying. Like, it's so confusing. I guess he didn't love children. I feel comfortable saying that Liam Neeson got that part wrong. Like, I was waiting for the revelation that Crane was, like, actually a pedophile or something. I, I was trying to have something make sense in this film with Crane and all these kids. I agree. There is so much is hinging on the idea that Crane is the scariest father figure there is. And when we see those photos, too, like, he's is he the cowardly lion? He's got this beard going on. The makeup is so bad. <laughs> I think he's supposed to look like the lion head on the flue and on the doorknobs and what have you. But, like... They really try too hard to make him look like a monster, even when he is in old-time photographs. And certainly when he's going to come through the house in the windows and through the ceilings, again, they've just really overdone the makeup job. And Nell is turning into his first wife, Renee. We've been told she killed herself. And then at some point, Nell sees, well, we know this from the earlier hauntings, that, you know, a woman hung herself up from that spiral staircase. So that was... In this version, the first wife, and now her hairdo is spinning into curls just like Renee in the oil portraits. And the one genuine CGI thing that I think works, she has a scene where she goes and looks in the mirror and Lily Taylor's face 
all of a sudden her mouth is looking weird and it's hard to know exactly why, but it's because they're using morphing technology to turn her into Renee. Yeah, she just looked like a different person to me. <laughs> yeah, I liked the hair stuff. I'll say that. The curling hair looked pretty good. I didn't care for the mirror stuff, though. That just, yeah, it looked like a different person. But are you scared? I mean, maybe, because I think the house wants to knock her up. And, and again, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out this storyline. She'll look in one of those mirrors, and I think it's practical, and it's really bad. Like, everything in this, forget the CGI, everything is bad. Like, the way her stomach blows up to show she's pregnant. So my reading is, oh, the house, this is Crane, how he gets, I don't know, more children to torture or something. He lures women in there and ghost impregnates. No, maybe he does that, but this is a real incestual take, if that's what's going on, as we'll find out. My reference is always Poltergeist, and I think about Carol Ann. Lily Taylor is kind of like a grown-up, you know, woman child, like Carol Ann would be. And so, in that movie, in Poltergeist, Carol Ann had a whole bunch of ghosts that were after her that were friendly. And that's kind of like these children here, the ones that, like, are gravitating. All the things that are coming through the sheets and, you know, all the kid faces that are leaping in her and all of that are just ghosts that are attracted to her and are hoping that she does something cool. And then the beast is Hugh Crane. Hugh Crane is the thing that's coming for her, and he wanted a child so bad. And she is the descendant of his second wife that got away, pregnant, I think, his baby. So he either wants her because she is his blood or he does want to impregnate her. Carol Ann, I don't know what the Beast was going to do other than use her to lure ghosts to him. But here it does feel rapey. Certainly when we get the bedroom scene where all the spikes are coming down and pinning her down like she's in a Sam Raimi Evil Dead movie. I do think we're to think sexual assault. Yeah, and that is the scene, because I'm watching this, I I don't know where it's going to go, it's my first viewing, so I'm like, maybe they're going to try to do the whole psychological thing again, but, you know, now they're just making it more extreme with these CGI elements that maybe she's seeing, but, no, when the rest of the group finally gets in that room, like, they see that... I don't even know what it is. The bed has molded around her. The whole ceiling really is is turned into a crane face. Well, yeah, there is that part too, which is just, I'm cracking up. I feel like I'm in a Disney movie. Everything turns into a face. (laughs) Yeah. But no, they see like the furniture has moved in unnatural ways. So I'm like, I'm like, okay, so now this is really just going to be a haunted house movie. Like that's where it becomes clear to me that we're supposed to be scared of all this stuff where I wasn't sure at this point because I have not been scared. (laughs) And Mero is taken aback because again, he didn't come here with the expectation that the ghost of the house would unsettle his patients. He didn't think it was haunted. And so this is where he's coming clean and Nell is the one insisting, no, it's haunted. And you're starting to see some guilt. He's trying to dissuade her from what she deeply believes is happening. And she's not leaving because she's, I don't know, homeless and convinced that this is going to be her home. She's got to save the children. Yeah, I guess because she was a caretaker to her mother, we're to understand that she wants to be a mother to all these little ghosts. But again, in in Poltergeist, we had a very clear delineation that these ghosts are, there's some that are good. Like we have, there's a whole speech when the ghost hunters come in. There's some that are good. And these are the ones that are, you know, gathering around like the light, you know, they see the light of Carol Ann. Again, it's not as clear here what these ghosts hope that Lily Taylor can do for them, other than what Hugh Crane wants to do with her in bed. Yeah, I really don't understand once we find out what she does, because uh, those doors have always been around to judge people. Don't know why she had to be involved to do that. 
Yeah, we're getting to some kind of climax where the house now is literally like a statue is like grabbing Liam Neeson and trying to drown him. And Luke Wilson's <laughs> trying to drive through the gates and the gates are coming down. And Did you see the car he was driving? There was no way it was making it through that gate. He took Eleanor's car that was 20 years old. He should have taken Marrow's car. I did think that was funny. Like, let me do this with the junker because no one will care if he gets wrecked. Yeah, and it's a grim one. I thought that was a funny little detail. But again, like, is this comedy? I mean, you guys are insistent that this is supposed to be straight up horror, but I feel like this is Tales from the Crypt kind of horror comedy here. But tonally speaking, I can't match that up with some crazy sicko that burned kids in the fireplace and wants to rape a homebody. I think you're just confusing Owen Wilson being in the film for comedy. Like, they have an actor that's known to do comedic performances. He is the the comedic one, but that does not make this a comedy just because he's doing silly things. But again, it's all about tone. The tone is Frighteners-ish. It's certainly not The Shining. The special effects are Frightener-ish. I mean, that's what I see them going for. Ghostbusters. Yeah, I wish it was as good as Ghostbusters or The Frighteners. Now, at any rate, rewrites say that Hugh had a second wife named Carolyn or Carol Ann, and she was the one that had this kid. And suddenly Eleanor knows that this is her destiny. So she's going to stay in the house. And Luke, I did remember he died. This is his death scene. I didn't remember this. I thought nobody would die in this, honestly. Oh, I remember. I thought it was supposed to be Neeson. And Neeson has a moment. They all have a moment where I thought they were going to die. Well, he's in the fireplace trying to pull up the ash bin door and he can't. And I'm like, oh, is he the one that gets killed? I remember somebody got beheaded in this fireplace. Shouldn't he be the one who died? He's the one who brought them all there under false pretense. Luke did nothing to deserve death. Yeah, I feel like there must have been a version where they killed Mero. And for reasons, maybe Neeson himself said, I'm too big a star. I don't know. <laughs> well, is it the same for Catherine Zeta-Jones? Because I thought she was dead, too. After we see Luke go, like a painting falls and like slashes her. I'm like, OK, so they're just going to kill everyone right here at the end. I don't know. But then, like, you know, you saw that gargoyle that's attacking. It's like, again, you don't see Ghostbusters in this. You don't feel like this is like Goosebumps kind of level horror. This is they're not obviously going for adult elevated horror for you know sophisticated minds i don't know do they think this looks cool like maybe they think these griffin statues coming alive is really good effect i i have to imagine you know again it's pg-13 so maybe they tame some stuff down but it feels like the tone is again except for owen wilson is more or less pretty serious like i'm never chuckling when Liam Neeson's walking around on screen the few times he's on here. Like, I don't feel, yeah, that there's that edge of camp to it. I think we're supposed to take this seriously. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that there are jokes here. I'm not saying it's Eddie Murphy's Haunted Mansion. I'm just saying it's the kind of lighthearted take on horror that was, quite frankly, very popular in the 80s. I feel like this is what PG-13 horror was in the era of Ghostbusters, Monster Squad. I don't know. I look at Ghostbusters. That opening library scene scared the hell out of me as a kid. Like, nothing in here. I don't think anything's scary for kids in this one. No. They failed. Yeah. Yeah. And again, because of the time. Had they gone for opticals and practicals, maybe this could have been spooky to the single-digit age. But I know nobody wants to talk about this disaster of a film in retrospect, but I really do wonder if there was ever a plan for an R-rated version. Because when Luke loses his head... 
The cutting around that is so bad. Now, either maybe Spielberg thought he was still in the era where he could get away with all of the gore of Poltergeist and call it PG, or maybe they thought maybe we'd make this a rated R film and then saw how much it was going to cost, and Spielberg, running his own studio, decided, no, we're going to pull this back to a PG-13 to try to get more butts in seats. But Luke's death specifically made me think frames have been edited. It's just weirdly cut. Oh, I went through it frame by frame. I'm like, does his head just disappear? Like, I guess the lion opened its mouth and bit it off. But yeah, yeah, it is no blood, very tame. I don't know. You guys are acting like they were at one time thinking about shocking people. I mean, we are not in that movie. We can all agree that this is not about, yeah, splatter and, and... that kind of special effects. But you don't behead unless you're going to do something like that. Sure you do. Like this, again, you had a guy tear his face off in Poltergeist. Like, you do gross. And you saw blood. It was gross. I get you. I think that this is a miscalculation. They were trying to walk the line of something that was goofy enough to play as PG-13 or PG like Poltergeist was, but yeah, would still work. Would still play as horror, but largely worked in the kind of silly, antiquated way, old-fashioned. I think that this movie thought about William Castle and like campy old Vincent Price movies as much as it thought about Kubrick or more. I wish it showed that it was thinking about them instead of just being not scary like those old films. I wish it was more Shirley Jackson. I mean, they throw in here the spiral staircase scene. They feel that they got to do that, otherwise it wouldn't be haunting. But somebody tell me what's happening here. Is she trying to kill herself? I don't understand because the staircase is falling down and Liam Neeson's like, come off the platform, come to me. I'm like, why is she going to come off that platform onto a staircase that's falling down? I did not understand the scene at all. Yeah, I thought if she jumped to him, it was certainly going to collapse. How do they get down even? I don't know. They cut to the next scene and they're down. Yeah, I don't know. But again, (laughs) I think it was an expensive set and they were like, we can't cut this, even though this serves no purpose. And are we expected to believe that Nell is possessed and the house wants to kill her now? Because I never got that they wanted to kill her. I got it that they wanted to impregnate her. I got that the other ghost wanted her to free them from purgatory. But I never got the sense that this house wanted blood from her. No, but my mind did jump back to that original film. I'm like, oh, wait, is Liam Neeson's wife going to show up here? But that's all gone. Yeah. Apparently, Liam Neeson is afraid of heights as well. He hated filming. It was several weeks climbing this. Act- it's an actual staircase that broke apart and looks really cool, but like, just not a fun moment for him. And so maybe why we don't have an end to this scene is Neeson just <laughs> didn't want to do any more of it. So what is the resolution of this film? Like, how did- Crane has... Come out of the painting. Oh my god, the worst. Awful looking. Not because it's scary or gross, because the CGI is once again awful. Why did he put in his own house a door that would judge spirits? Yeah, I think I said that at the beginning. I don't understand why you would have this door here, especially if you're going to be a child murderer. I can't help you. Because it looked like a cool door, because it was based on Rodan, and they thought that that would be really gothic and cool as an object. (laughs) It was based on Rodan, but this guy was no thinker. (laughs) Yeah, so does Nell, I guess she gets his spirit close enough to the door that the demons on it could grab him and drag him to hell? Uh, sure. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it is, to me, like you are standing on an altar to be judged, and... 
Yeah, he was judged unworthy and sucked down to hell. Yeah, I did cheer, though, out loud when, yeah, we see Nell also get pulled into the door and then these demon carvings, like, lowering her to the ground as she's posed in the cross because she is the savior. (laughs) I'm like, wow, they're going for it. They did it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Purgatory is over. You go to hell. Something dramatic is happening here. She's maybe a little (laughs) Tangina trying to cast it all out. But again, she doesn't even have any connection to the spirit world. Like, they... They went away from that. It doesn't work for these characters. They have no ability to fight the supernatural. So they're all losers here. We're all losers here. Those watching the film, those making the film. (laughs) I mean, the fact that she's having this confrontation with her grandpa and she's like, you're my grandpa. And Crane's like, no, I'm not. Like, I'm like, oh, is this going to be another big reveal? Nope, he's going to hell. Yeah, how, how did the wife get away? I feel like we sort of kind of half gisted that understanding, but I really don't understand how Hugh did impregnate a woman, how he got a second wife, how she got away, why her daughter didn't, like, go back and do this and put it on Lily Taylor to do so many years after the fact. I, It's sad. It really is sad to watch so much money burn which is kind of the effect I'm watching here of like, boy, DreamWorks, you really, yeah. (laughs) Hill House, Poltergeist, Stephen King, you went for The Shining, and this is as close as you got to that? Oof. At least it doesn't prolong the ending. As soon as Eleanor is shown in the doorway, Neeson and Zeta Jones are like, we're out of here to better movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it should be said, like, Nell dies. Like, she just gives up the ghost and goes plays with the children in heaven. She had nowhere to go. Like, again, they hadn't resolved the fact that she was homeless. <laughs> and then Morrow and Theo just, like, walk out of the gate. Like, that's it. Roll credits, sure. Bruce Dern's waiting for them to so he yeah. can open the door. Yeah. Did Mero find out <laughs> what he wanted to know? We don't even know what he wanted to know. No, then what did we learn about fear or anything in this? And this film, like, it's going to cut to Jerry Goldsmith's carousel music for the closing credits. Wow, what a mood setter. Yeah, it's the opposite of Poltergeist. It doesn't know what scares you. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend 1999's The Haunting? Jacob. I think it's hilarious that King was involved with this at some point, because after I watched this, I did not know that. I'm like, oh, This feels like something we would have watched for that Stephen King retrospective that's been going on forever. Like, it's bad. It's full of miscalculations. It just, it feels like, again, something that would happen to King's work. Not saying that about his actual novels, just often when they get adapted to films, they're not good. And I just, I don't know, because, yeah, it had that shining vibe with statues coming alive. Again, the vibe from the novel where the hedge animals come alive and all that, like... Yeah, bad Stephen King? Like, that's not a compliment. The thing that's haunting this film, though, is the ghost of missing script pages. Like, all the bad (laughs) CGI, sure, that's there. But, man, how incoherent this story is was maybe the biggest shock. I don't know. There's so much bad CGI, it's very shocking, too. But just trying to make sense of anyone's motivations, they do not exist. They are ghosts stuck in purgatory. I don't know if they're good or bad. Yeah, stay away from this one. Don't let it haunt you with it, because I'm going to be haunted by these memories of that fountain reaching out its hand to grab Liam Neeson and pull him into that fountain. It's just so many bad moments. I couldn't believe they actually went for it. Huge miscalculations. Do not see this. Not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I didn't think it was possible, but they finally made a Poltergeist movie I don't like. I recommended them all, even that fourth remake one that nobody liked or even remembers. I've always enjoyed this. 
knowing that Steven Spielberg was going to go to the source novel that he drew such inspiration for Poltergeist, working with Stephen King, all of this, yeah, like it has less to do with Shirley Jackson and much more with him returning to the Freeling family and trying to get some Poltergeist money a decade later. Too bad he chose DeBont, who really doesn't seem to understand what scares anybody and is very much in action mode and swinging his camera all around these sets like it was a diehard movie or something. But yeah, where was the psychological horror for all of his allegiance to Kubrick? I dare say there's not a single shot in this that Kubrick would have filmed. And yeah, you already have the version that's based on psychological inference. We can watch Robert Wise 1963 movie. They needed to go big. I'm not saying that it was the wrong instinct to go for spectacle, but if these are your special effects, then please don't make the movie this way. The problem is twofold. You don't have any sympathy for anyone in this cast, and everything intended to scare us looks incredibly chintzy. And so, yeah, it's just a mishmash of bad ideas, half-written and and rewritten things that I don't think would scare even under 13. Like, I, again, a G-rated audience, and I dare say you get a howl. I think that this one will not play to any demographic. And which is sad because the inner seven-year-old in me really does like when Spielberg goes to horror. It makes you wish that he would stop hiding behind Jan DeBont and Toby Hooper and just go make one for Christ's sake. Just go do it and don't let other directors be your fall guy. But yeah, this is a far calm down from the 1963 movie, the way that it made Nell such a tragic figure, locked in a dysfunctional marriage with a house. Here, she's some kind of Mother Teresa superhero floating around with ghost babies and Casper. Lily Taylor looks foolish. The entire cast looks foolish. Resist the temptation to buy this house. I know that the set looks cool, but inside it is all rot. It is all ruined. It's a strong not recommend. Jacob, you said that this movie seems like something we'd be watching for the Stephen King retrospective. And all I could think of is... This is making some Uva Bowl movies look better. See, I haven't watched those. Like, I, there are depths of hell I will not go to for now playing, and Uva Bowl is those depths. But yet, I mean, while this is better than Blubberella, <laughs> this is... Is it? Yes, it is better than Blubberella. Yeah, it's better than most Uva Bowl films just by its production values. No. It really is. Come on, you're being ridiculous. I legitimately would watch House of the Dead before watching this again. Okay, but that doesn't mean that House of the Dead is a better film than this. That just means that it's shorter. No, I believe it is better. I legit believe it is a better film than this. I mean, here's the thing is, I I was very willing to go to hyperbole and say this is the worst movie I've ever reviewed for now playing, except then I really do think about some of the shit we've reviewed for now playing, so I'll never be able to say what the worst film I've reviewed now is. There's been so many bad ones, mostly in the arcade, but this deserves to be among them. This really does. This is there with Alone in the Dark 2 in my mind. Is that the one you burned? Yes. <laughs> I mean, when Stuart put The Haunting on the schedule, I was like, I'm not excited by this franchise because I had low expectations of my enjoyment of the first film, and we went through there, but I remembered this film, and coming back to it was like, reliving the trauma of a car wreck. I'm surprised that you're having such an intense... I mean, it's such a forgettable movie. I can't imagine that it, like, destroyed you. Are you still mad at Liam Neeson? No. 
<laughs> if anybody's mad at Liam Neeson, it should be him for what he's done with his career instead of retire. But I'm going to be completely honest. I mean, the worst sin of this film is extreme boredom. This movie is the cure for the insomnia that he is looking for. <laughs> I don't know any other benefit to this film. It is two hours of complete disinterest. You have actors in here who I enjoy watching on screen. All four of these leads have enchanted me in other performances. And here, I don't want to see any of them. I don't want to see this movie. And yet, just so I can level set everything, I didn't think it was that much worse than the movie we reviewed last week. You think The Haunting is one of the worst things we've ever done? One of the most dull and disinteresting, yes. Okay, and yet it is foundational. I would argue that many Haunted House movies, including The Shining, again, one we all really love, take a lot from it. Again, I can understand not liking it, but I guess I just like Haunted House movies. Like, I can't imagine hating any Haunted House movie as much as what you've just described. I cannot find anything interesting in these. Well, wait till we do 10 hours of it. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my lord. <laughs> I'm going to lay down a gambit, and I could be proven totally wrong, but most people I know that have seen the Netflix miniseries of Haunting of Hill House use the word great. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things about it. I haven't watched it. And I will be among them. It is absolutely fantastic. But didn't you think the first movie was absolutely fantastic? I think the original is a classic, and I think it works, but I will be surprised. I'm just going to lay it down. I know you and I, Arnie, don't see eye to eye about a lot of movies. I'd be really surprised if you aren't emotionally moved by the movie we're covering next week. I hope I am. I always want to like every movie I watch, and it's a 10-hour one. I really hope it's better than the remake of The Stand to go to another Stephen King one. It is. But in the meantime, this Friday, we're going to have a film that I think is intended to be a little bit more mirthful and fun and Tales from the Crypty. You're next, the home invasion film. I have seen this one, yeah. A lot of fun. Yes, it's the third movie in our Silver Level series. If you've been joining us, we've already covered The Strangers and its sequel. This one is going to have a similar scenario, but with a different tonal take. So that is there for Silver Level donors. Just a $10 donation gets you five bonus home invasion movie reviews. Plus, if you go gold, we're going to be starting more Haunted House stuff with Paranormal Activity in the coming weeks. So Jacob, Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time... Purgatory is over. You go to hell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Is it over? Do you think it's over? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. What if they have a bad dream? Well, I'm sure we can handle any dream you have. 
you can hear more movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find reviews of The Insidious Films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Saw, and hundreds more. There's something down here. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. What if I dream that you sent us away into the dark and we got hurt? Really hurt. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks. Find the details on our website. I have to join them. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Now look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Don't you love it here? This is so twisted. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I can't stand it anymore, and I, I have to die. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Now I want you two to get good rest. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. You all suffer from sleep disorders. Now Playing credits read by Brock. It knows my name. This time it knows my name. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. When he said those things, he believed them. You never did. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Have you ever kept something yourself because you were afraid? All the time. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. So there won't be anyone around if you need help. We couldn't even hear you in the night. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Purgatory's over. You go to hell. If you're not afraid, give them the plot, and we'll find out about Haunting 1999. Hello?
I'm waiting to. Okay. All right. You guys can't hear me? I've no. been reading the plot summary. Is this some kind of joke? Yeah. No. Oh. For real? Yeah, I'm on paragraph three, goddammit. <laughs> nope. We have heard not a word. Like, I literally was sitting all this time thinking, okay, he's getting his notes. He's getting ready. I know he has that special microphone. Notes must have crashed, and they're taking a long time to open. And <laughs> I started immediately, like the moment you said plot. Wow. Nothing. 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 And I don't know whether that means... I'm not hearing it or your mic's not picking it up. I don't know what that means. <laughs> All right, let me start over. I'm like, I had a fairly funny joke in there. Dead air. I'm like, is this thing on? It's not. Okay. <laughs> You're like, I'm bombing tonight. Here, <laughs> <laughs> you can cut in that laugh. All right. <laughs> Liam Neeson is David Marrow, a doctor performing a study. Per- I didn't even stumble once on that last one, do. <laughs> He tells Luke Wilson a story about the house that other people don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Luke Sanderson or Owen Wilson, you you did the thing. Oh. <laughs> okay, I'll re-say it. <laughs> you mixed him up with his brother. Yeah. Are we at the end? I hope so. <laughs> I'm surprised to see you disparage the source material so thoroughly. Supermodels come down from Cro-Magnon, man. That doesn't mean I want to fuck a Cro-Magnon. I don't even know what you just said. (laughs) Wait, are you talking about evolutionary speaking they come out of Cro-Magnon, man? Yes. Okay. All right.